Good morning. It's good to be back with you here on East Campus. Uh, love taking a tour of the back there, seeing all the new construction that is just finishing. That is so cool. It's been a long time. My, uh, some of you may know my oldest daughter taught third grade at Faith Academy for a period of time, and she loved it. We talk about that often. I own helped uh, her in that classroom, but uh, it's really neat to see how this school and this campus continues to grow and to uh, manifest the power of God. All right, so as we get into God's word this morning, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace, your mercy. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we uh, open your word, as we look at the life of Peter and uh, Judas and others, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless us. I ask, Lord, that uh, what I say would be clear that our hearts would uh, be focused on what you have for us today, those things in our lives, Lord, that crowd into our thinking, that don't need to be there, we pray that you would take them away. Lord, we just commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're in Acts chapter 1, and uh, we have, for the last two weeks, been exploring this. Doug started us off with a uh, overview and introduction, if you will, to the book of Acts. And then last week we were uh, looking uh, at different parts of it, but right at the very beginning section with the uh, commission, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. And today we're going to drop down and we're going to look at uh, the replacement of the 12th apostle. So I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room and they were where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord, which I think we can interpret to mean they were in agreement together. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now in those days, Peter stood up amongst the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood, for so it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And from there they go about to casting lots choosing Matthias as the next of the 12 apostles. So in this passage in Acts, we're focused on two men this morning, two men that had similar choice to make. As I said, we saw last week how the 11 apostles listened to Jesus's last words and then watched the cloud of God come in underneath Jesus, lift him up and take him up to the throne room of God where he now is and acts as an advocate for us who are believers and prepares us for his return. 
Two angels, men in white as they're called, challenged the 11 to not just stand there, but to, uh, watching Jesus ascend, but to go back to Jerusalem and there await the coming of the Holy Spirit. This was in fulfillment of what Jesus' promise had been to them back as is recorded in John chapter 14, verse 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. A little bit later, it says in verse 25, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is basically saying, after the ascension, after I am gone from you, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. He will help you as you do all the things necessary to fulfill the commission of God, which he says must go forth from where? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. They couldn't do that in the strength of their own flesh or even with all the experience they had in walking with Jesus. They had to have the Holy Spirit filling them, animating them, giving them strength and the ability to perform before a world all of the miracles that Jesus had done in his gospel ministry. So they now were preparing to do for them. So the Holy Spirit is going to come. One of the first things recorded here in this book is the words of Peter, as I just read, stating that they had to find a replacement for Judas. Uh, as I read, I'm going to reread it in verse 16. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren and said, Brothers, the scriptures have to be fulfilled, which is the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Peter's making it very clear, we have to replace him. We can't just go on with the 11. And that seems a little strange to us because what difference does it make if there's 11 or 12 apostles? But what we know from scripture is that in fact, there needed to be 12. It was a fulfillment of prophetic utterance by prophets in the Old Testament. It is a fulfillment of the way that God sets things up uh, the number 12 has a correlation with the 12 tribes that are uh, part of the tribes of Israel. But we also read in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus saying to his men, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and he's speaking to the apostles here, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then later in the book of Revelation, it says, then came, and this is kind of a freaky scene. If you haven't read this before, you have to have a good imagination. John the apostle is writing the vision given to him, and uh, he's trying to let us know what is yet to come. And this would be at the end of all of the judgments, the bowls and the trumpets and so forth. And the new earth and the new heavens are coming into being. But he says, and he writes, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me, that is John, saying, come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. So the names of the tribes of Israel are put on there, right? And in the wall, the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. For whatever reason, God is trying to show continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The 12 tribes in the Old Testament of Israel, the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Judas should have been amongst them. That was the plan. But Judas had abdicated his role. He had betrayed his Lord. And now they had to find a new one. No matter how you interpret this Revelation passage, God's mind had 12 apostles and a replacement had to be found. It's a fulfillment that could not be overlooked, could not just allow to escape. Judas couldn't just be judged and someone else be found. So they had to find a new person. As we read through this passage, we see these two men are presented to us by Luke, Peter and Judas. That's where we're going to focus this morning. Who are these two guys? What is so important about them? Two men who have a shared experience. They both betrayed their Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Let's, we can see this when we take a look at the uh, different events in their lives. If we need to go back uh, in Scripture to the last week of Jesus' life, where both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John uh, state that Satan enters Judas so that he can do his evil deed. We read in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how Judas might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. In John 13, 27, we similarly read, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Satan was not going to leave this to chance. For you and me, a lesser demon might have been sent if for some reason uh, Satan had perceived that you or I had to play a role in God's salvation history and he wanted to get in the way of that and cause trouble. He would send one of his lesser uh, people back to us to, to make sure that we get our eyes off of God. But in this case, with the opportunity to kill the Son of God, no one else would suffice. Satan in his pride, his hubris, seeks to thwart the eternal plan of God to redeem mankind by killing the second Adam, that is Jesus. His willing pawn, seeming though unlikely, was the apostles. One of the apostles in this case, which is Judas. Peter's words in Acts indicate that Judas had to fulfill the words of prophecy. And sometimes we can read that and think, well, Judas didn't have a choice. God commissioned him to be the betrayer. He had to go and do this evil deed, but that simply is not the case. 
God's prophecy here is a predictive prophecy. Uh, he saw that Judas would make this choice. It's not unlike the Pharaoh in Egypt when it says God hardened his heart to keep the children of Israel from leaving. It doesn't mean that he was free of his own moral choice. It just means that this is what God knew him to do. Judas had a choice. He didn't have to do this, but he chose to do this. Well, what do we know about Judas as a man? Although the Gospels do not give us the precise moment when Jesus called Judas to be a part of the 12, we do read in Luke 6 that he is there from the earliest parts of the commission of these 12. And it says, And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed them Simon, to whom is given the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, right? Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. And then Judas Iscariot. Iscariot, we know, is just a town in southern Palestine. Basically, if we were doing this today, we would say this is the story of Dave of Iowa City. Judas of Iscariot. His name is from the Hebrew for the word Judah, which is the most important tribe probably of the 12, at least as far as salvation history is concerned. But he's identified as Judas of Iscariot, which is most likely a reference to the southern Palestinian town that he came from. So of all the 12 apostles, he is the only one not from Galilee. Also, we see Judas was considered the treasurer for the 12. He was collecting and paying out money for the sustenance of this itinerant band of Jesus followers. But in so doing, he was identified as being a thief, a dishonest man. In John 12, 6, it says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, that is referencing Judas, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This is the scene where Mary is anointing Jesus' feet with an expensive perfume. And Judas protests and says, this is too expensive. We shouldn't use it for this purpose. This could be sold. And then the money given to the poor. However, as so often happens with any of us, our words betray our own hearts. Judas wasn't really concerned about the poor. He was lamenting the fact that this money wouldn't be available for him. Judas was a lover of money. You might even say that the money was his God. For this reason, both Matthew and Mark go immediately from this scene to Judas making a deal with the temple authorities to betray Jesus. The actual act of betrayal is set in motion at the Last Supper when Jesus verbally identifies and then seemingly commissions Judas to leave the horrific events that set Jesus' death in motion. Earlier I said that Judas may have been in love with money. It's ironic, isn't it? Because out of the 33 parables that Jesus tells, 16 of them fully dealt with money. Judas had heard about what the right attitude should be for money. He knew that what he was doing was wrong, but he continues over and over again to set the value of a coin above the value of people. It shows an actual lack of trust in God the Father. But that's not his only problem. 
Let's keep reading. The act of betrayal which set in motion at the Last Supper when Jesus verbally identifies then seemingly commissions Judas to leave to start the horrific events of his death in motion. We read in John 13, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and, and testified, truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him and said, Jesus, ask Jesus, who's he speaking of? So that disciple, and John's always so humble, he never mentions his own name, but he is this disciple, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped that morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at this table knew why he said this to him. Some of these apostles thought that, well, Jesus or Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. We're not told why Jesus specifically decided to betray Jesus. As I said before, some believe that it was an issue of money. Personally, I believe things began to go south for Judas when he learned that Jesus hadn't come as he had been taught since he was a boy to reestablish Israel to the glory of the Davidic kingdom. I think Judas saw himself playing a major role. This is not uncommon among these 12 men. We remember the story of James and John, their mother actually coming to Jesus and saying, please, may my son sit at your left and your right hand in the coming kingdom. She didn't understand the pain and the anguish the sacrifice that had to be made for that kingdom to be available. And nor does Judas. It must have been such a blow to him when Jesus began to explain in the latter part of his ministry time that he had actually come to give his life as a ransom for many. He must have felt betrayed himself. Three years of my life have I given to this man. And for what? So that this Galilean peasant could willfully give up his life to the very authorities that he was supposed to conquer? I have falsely believed that this man is a Messiah. Now, it's not written in Scripture. I won't go to the wall for that interpretation, but I think it's probably pretty accurate. Judas fell out of love with Christ. He fell out of love with the mission. And for the who knows how much time, he had to keep that hidden in his heart. He had to act like the other 12, but he did not believe like they believed. When we read John's account of that Last Supper, it's perplexing to us why the rest of the apostles didn't try to do something. I mean, they asked, who is it, right? They, John, see from, you can get Jesus to tell us exactly who it is. Jesus tells them, it's the one that I dip my bread into the cup and then give it to him. They had to have known. But that part of scripture kind of winds up saying, oh, they were left wondering. Now, I don't know if this was divine confusion because of the commission that was upon Christ to give his life and nothing could stop it. 
Or if the apostles were a little thick, they're not really picking up on what's happening here. But whatever is the case, they could have stopped him if they had been more astute, if they had really watched what was happening. But Judas was left on his own to leave and go to the temple authorities. The wheels are set in motion. And Judas, being filled with satanic fury and evil, takes a hand in the death of the man who he had at one time had admired. Lastly, we see him in the garden leading a troop of temple guards to arrest Jesus. On a prearranged signal, he greets Jesus with a kiss and thus identifies the man as being the target of the chief priest's plot to kill this rabble-rouser, this pretended Messiah. In Matthew 26, it reads, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. Notice the identifier. He's still given that title of apostle. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one that I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greeting, rabbi. And he kissed him. I don't know what the emotions were between these two men at this point. I haven't had the experience of someone that I have personally discipled more or less betraying me. I've had high schoolers act kind of dumb <laughs> and done things that were in a sense a betrayal of everything that we had taught, but you have to chalk that up to high schoolers. This is a man, and he understands what he's doing, and notice Jesus' response to him. He says, friend, friend, do what you have to do they came and lay up and laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. I think what we're going to see is that, those, that exchange made such an impact on Judas emotionally. Up to that point, I think he felt very justified that he was out there doing what the Lord had told him to do. Perhaps he had begun to believe that Jesus was a false Messiah. That's how Satan's deceit works in our hearts. We think we're doing the will of God, but in fact, we could be doing just the exact opposite. And Jesus calls him friend. Judas had a choice. It was a choice he made some time earlier. He sought to conceal it until he felt the moment was right. And then forever on, for the last 2,000 years in church history, Jesus has been known as the betrayer. If I had asked you when you walked in today, think of two phrases, New Testament betrayer. Who does that fit? I'm sure most of you, I would have, would have said Judas, of course. The Gospel of Matthew, as does our passage in Acts this morning, details Judas's judgment and punishment. If you're reading along in Acts, there is a parenthetical thought. Now, Peter didn't actually speak these words. This is what Luke is adding from his own historical research. And he writes this, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It didn't go well for Judas. The passage in Matthew says that he took the silver, he returned it to the chief priests and said, here, I can't take it. I have betrayed innocent blood. Now notice he's not saying I betrayed the Messiah. I've gone against that which I believe in. He's just saying that the man was a good man. 
He didn't deserve to be arrested. He doesn't deserve to be treated like you're treating him. We don't know in what segment of Jesus' arrest and trials and beatings and whippings and mockings and eventual crucifixion that this broke upon Judas's consciousness. But we do know that he did not have the right thought. He's not saying, please stop doing this to the Son of God. He's just merely saying, this is an innocent man. Of course, the chief priests refused to accept the money. They decided to buy that field, the potter's field. And Judas is probably one of the first inhabitants of it. It didn't go well for him. Our second man that we're looking at this morning is, of course, Peter, the apostle. Just like Judas, he is called by Jesus, but we're told a little bit more about his story, and we're not going to read all those parts. But it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. My wife was pointing out as I was going through this with her that they'd already had probably six months of interaction, Peter and Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He'd seen him do things that were very unsettling. Didn't really realize what his role might be with Jesus. But by this point in the gospel accounts, he's full in. This is it. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. If you've watched the uh, Chosen TV series, which uh, we've really appreciated, uh, while it takes some artistic license, that scene where Matthew, excuse me, Peter comes to the shore after getting his uh, boatload of fish, and it begins to dawn on him that this man is special. This Jesus is more than just a preacher, more than just a teacher. It's an amazing thing. We're told that Peter was married. If you've seen uh, any of the accounts in the Gospels, we know that Peter's mother-in-law was healed by Jesus. Uh, Peter's wife, though spoken of quite often in church history, is very rarely mentioned in the Gospels. Um, from the beginning of the Gospel account of Jesus' ministry life, though, what we see is that Peter is front and center. There's all kinds of stories about Peter as contrasting with Judas. But we most prominently see him in stories such as Jesus walking across the water. And Peter decides he wants to go out and join him. But after a few faithful steps, he begins to lose his courage. He takes his eyes off of Christ. He begins to sink into the water. He fears drowning is imminent. And he shrieks in fear, crying for Jesus to rescue him, which Christ does. But it serves to cause the reader to see, as you read that part of the Gospels, just how human Peter is. We can see ourselves in these baby steps of faith, right? And then the need to be rescued by our Lord. We also see him in another account, Matthew 16, when Jesus is telling his disciples the real reason that he came. It says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside, that is Jesus, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, Peter says, you will never die like this. I won't let it happen. 
But Jesus turned and said to Peter, these are fateful words, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter's heart was in the right place. Jesus was his friend. Would we say any less to a brother, sister, to a friend that we really cared about? Oh, I know I'm going to die. And it's going to happen like this. Wouldn't we say, oh, no, 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 that can't happen. If you die, I'm going to go with you. But I'm going to do my best to keep it from happening. I'm sure Peter's heart was in the right place. But Jesus uses very stern words. Get behind me, Satan. See, Peter didn't understand the full plan of God. He didn't understand that Jesus had actually come to die, to take upon himself the form of a man, and to take it all the way to Golgotha to be crucified. We also see Peter refusing to let Jesus later wash his feet. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what am I going to do? Excuse me, what am I doing that you do not understand now? But afterward, you will understand it. Peter said to him, well, you, you're never going to wash my feet. That's just not right. I can't do that. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, again, very harsh words, you do not have any share with me. What does that mean? I think Peter heard those words as saying, you won't have a share in the coming kingdom. What? Simon Peter says back to him, Lord, uh, okay, not my feet only, but wash my hands and my head. Take me all. Give me a bath. I can handle it. I'm sure Jesus probably grinned to himself as his unruly fisherman is beginning to maybe not have so much of an understanding, but is again showing his faith. He believes. He believes in what Jesus is doing. I could include many more Peter's stories, but what is important this morning is that we fast forward to the night of Jesus' betrayal. Like Judas, so also Peter betrayed his Lord. Jesus first predicted that Peter would do this when he says in John's gospel, Simon, Simon, remember that's the other name for Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now before we read that Satan entered into Judas on a couple different occasions. But here, Jesus is saying Satan wants to do that with you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But, contrastive, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Oh, this, this is, you know, you, you know a Peter in your life, don't you? We all know Peter's. So braggadocious, so bold. Uh, I, I will never let this happen. And yet when the moment comes where we're tested, where are they? And Jesus, once again, getting into the heart of this man. He is saying, Peter, 
you're going to deny me. Three times. Judas betrays Jesus first in the garden, and then Peter, despite his bragging, betrays Jesus as he's led away to give an answer before the chief priests. The story is told to us in John's Gospels. Then they seized him, that is Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But Peter denies it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. He knows, he suspects that to identify with Christ at this point, at minimum, means that he would be arrested and probably flogged, beaten, but perhaps even killed. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man was also with him for he is a Galilean. Peter's own pattern of speech betrayed him. And Peter says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, I think he does a good job of showing us how through the archways of the high priest's courtyard, while Jesus, covered in blood, mocked, being just had at by the temple guards, can turn and see Peter strenuously defending himself, saying that he's not part of them. And as the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, so you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Two different men, Judas and Peter. As I said to you earlier, if I were to say to you, New Testament betrayer, most of us who are at all knowledgeable about the New Testament would say, well, that's Judas. How many of you would have said Peter? Some of you. But they're both betrayers. Let's compare their stories just a little bit. Both betray Christ. Maybe for different reasons. Maybe at different times. But both betray Christ. Secondly, Satan seeks to control both to achieve his purposes. Now, were these the only two of the 12 that Satan went after? I doubt it. But these were two of the most influential ones. Judas, from the perspective of God's prophetic history, he, he had to have that person who would betray him. Peter, from the idea that he was the leader of the 12, both key in the chess game that Satan is playing. Satan seeks to control both achieve his purposes. Thirdly, there's no denying that the path to Golgotha, the crucifixion, was created by the betrayal of two of his friends, his apostles. So far, they're walking step by step with each other. There isn't a lot to distinguish them one from another. Both men, fourthly, were filled with shame and in some way repented of their actions. We see Judas coming back to the temple priest and throwing the money back at them. I can't take this money. I've betrayed an innocent man. And we see Peter leaving the courtyard, weeping bitterly, knowing that he has 
not held up his promise to his Lord in fulfillment of what Jesus saw coming. But these weren't real repentances, were they? Judas was uh, merely sorry that he had played the role in taking the life of someone who didn't deserve to die. Nobody wants that on their heart. Peter, though, by contrast, he had faith. Maybe this is where their roads diverge. Judas, in his repentance, demonstrated no faith. Peter, in his repentance, demonstrated the faith that was always latent within him. He was sorry that he, Peter, had been a coward, and despite his boasting that he would always protect his Lord, at the crucial moment, he ran and hid. But I don't think he ever lost his faith in Christ. How do we know that Peter was a man of faith? Well, the story continues. You know, even if I go back first, let's look at John 6. Jesus had been busy in this part of his ministry. If I can put you back in the history of the Gospels, about halfway through Jesus' ministry life, he had done all this healing and all this casting out of demons and feeding people and being, giving wise counsel and sparring with the Sadducees and the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. But now he felt the time was right to reveal the true purpose of why he was here. As Paul calls it in Romans, this was the mystery of the ages. He says, I came to die. And it says that the crowds left him. And in this scene that I'm reading today, we see the men, the 12 at least, and maybe more, walking down a road, sullen silence, Sorrow, not wanting what Jesus had said to actually ever happen, but it had caused everyone else, when they realized that the gravy train was done, to leave him. It says in verse 66 of John 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, with Jesus. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? In other words, have you lost faith in me? Simon Peter answered him, and this is like one of those red letter times in the Gospels. This is the phrase that I probably more than any other carry in my scriptures as being so key to what we do in discipleship today in our churches at Parkview. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Shouldn't that be what our churches are known for? I mean, too often we try in what we do, whether it's youth groups or children's ministries or men's discipleship, women's discipleship, to, to be a fun and an exciting place. And we try to compete with what the world has to offer. But I truly tell you, the only thing that we have to offer is this phrase right here. Lord, where else are we going to go? You are the Holy One, the Son of God. And you are the words of eternal life. That's what we have to offer to a lost and dark world. Back in our gospel passage, Jesus answers them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Then he gives us that cryptic words, And yet one of you is a devil. Now here John writes in, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve. He was going to betray him. 
I don't think they understood that at the time. Jesus said so many things that seemed too deep for them. But Peter, Peter nails it. And if you remember the passage, Jesus says, upon this confession of who I am, I will build my church. How important that was. Peter had faith. This is an amazing paragraph in scripture as it shows us the contrast between these two men. Peter, the outrageous, bumbling, always humorous man of faith, and Judas, the one possessed by Satan, lost his faith, utterly lacking in faith. Then we see what happens to him at the end, as I've already read, as we've already seen in our passage here in Acts. Judas, his despair and his sorrow leads him to commit suicide. In the Gospels, he's said to have hung himself, possibly, according to the book of Acts, after he hung himself, the rope broke or something like that, and he falls and his bowels burst upon the ground. It's one interpretation. Peter, filled with shame and sorrow, goes back to Galilee to resume his life as a fisherman. He was there. He ran down to the empty tomb after the testimony of the women told him that Jesus wasn't there. He saw it with his own eyes. He saw Jesus come into that upper room. He knew the truth. But still, the anguish, the pain of what he had done so filled him. And they went back and they picked up the family business once again. Well, I guess there's nothing to le left to do. Uh, Jesus, you know, left us. So we might as well be fishermen. But it says in John 22, and again, another of my favorite passages, just as day was breaking, we're up at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus stood on the shoreline, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? They'd been with him for three years. Most of them, many of them at least, were at the cross. All of them had seen Jesus at some point, resurrected, but they didn't recognize it. But Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him and said, no. Kind of, you get the impression here that they're kind of like saying, we don't know who you are, but we doubt if you're a fisherman, so get out of here. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You will find some. So they cast it. They had nothing else to lose. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, this is just great. I love this picture. That it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he had been stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they are not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Peter, despite his betrayal, hears the call of his Lord, and what is his response? Is it you? I can't believe it. And just like it had happened almost three years before, Jesus was there in Galilee, while they were fishing. It just seemed like old days. And Peter wanted that so badly. That should be our response. All of us have betrayed Jesus in some way, in some fashion in our lives. We've not been as strong for the Lord 
as we intended. We hear a good sermon on mission, on reaching our neighbors for Christ, and then we find that we fall way short of what we thought we could do. I've shared with Lee Central Campus before how as a young believer in high school, I'd been convicted about bringing my Bible to school and a guy, an evangelist by the name of John Ankerberg had come to Omaha and he had convicted our youth program and said, take your Bible. It's a great discussion starter about your faith. So I eagerly did so. And I remember all of us did that. And we were so excited about it. Problem for me is I was one of the few who went to Omaha Central High School. The rest of our youth group, most of them seemed to go to Omaha South. And so I was by myself. And one guy came up to me, and he was just being kind of a crazy guy, but he just looked at me and says, what's the Bible for? And at that moment, I had a choice to make, didn't I? And I didn't tell him, well, let me tell you how I became a believer in Jesus Christ. Instead, I said to him, uh, uh, I'm taking Greek, <laughs> which I was, but it had nothing to do with anything. And the guy went, oh, okay. Probably thought it was pretty strange that the school was teaching Greek out of the Bible. And, you know, as soon as he left me, I can really relate with Peter. I was just so ashamed, so disgusted with me. I just totally let Jesus down. I remember going to youth group that week and sharing that story with the people there. And there were a couple others who had had similar experiences. But the second time, the third time, maybe it was the fourth time, I'd had enough of me. And that time, when a kid asked me, why are you carrying a Bible? I said, ah, because I love Jesus, and I want to read everything about him. Man, did that start some motors turning. I didn't have a good reputation in that school. I'd been kicked out twice for fighting. I wasn't a great student. And now this has happened. My speaking for, for Christ continued to gain momentum. And I got bolder and bolder as Jesus began to change who I was into what he wanted me to be. I even had a group of really nice kids in an honors English class the next year. They were not happy with me carrying a Bible. They weren't happy with my testimony. They thought that I was kind of out of control. And one of the guys who claimed to be a believer told me, he says, you know, you're the most obnoxious Christian I have ever met. And I just remember saying back to him, well, at least people know that I am a Christian. It wasn't a kind thing to say. I'm not advocating that, but uh, I'm just saying we all face these situations. And just because we've been defeated once doesn't mean we give up. We come back over and over and over to the opportunities that the Holy Spirit gives us in mission to talk to people, to reach out to them. I love it. A little bit later in that John 22 passage, after Peter is reunited with his Lord, it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. 
he said to him, what? Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know everything about me. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Three times Jesus convicts and instructs Peter as to his life's mission. The important thing to note here is that Jesus did not condemn him, did not send him away, did not take him out of the group of 12 or 11 at this point. He just reemphasized to him what we're supposed to be about. Repent. Take back up that mission. Carry your Bible if you need to. Do whatever it is that you can to be a witness for him. Peter will go on to be the head of the church for the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts. There's no one more prominent until the day he dies. He is considered the man that everyone wants to see and hear and be with. He is so popular. And Peter and his wife, according to church history, Eusebius, both end up giving their life for Jesus. What had begun decades ago, through all these different things that Peter had to learn, ended with him desiring not to be crucified like Jesus had been, but to be crucified upside down. He thought it was too much for him to imitate Christ in every last detail. And his wife was similar in her faith to Peter's. I don't know where you're at this morning, where in this journey you're at. You may be at some point in earlier Peter life where it's just all new to you and you're trying to make sense of it. But at some point, some point, Christ is going to ask of you to do your mission. What will be your response? Will you betray him? Will you chicken out, so to speak? Do you need to ask his forgiveness? And do you need to be recommissioned? Because I tell you, Jesus is enduring. He's loving. He's caring. He knows you. He knows you. And he wants you on his team. What we can't do is be like Judas. Lose our faith. We have to walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time together today. I thank you for your word, the truth of it. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to not be defeated once and then give up, but to go after it over and over and over again, to take that step of faith into sharing your gospel, the truth of what you've done in our lives with those who are lost, so that they can join us so that they can be with us after their eyes close in this world and open onto the next. This is our hope and this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to take communion. Hopefully you got a little chalice as you walked in this morning. If you didn't, put up your hand. I'm sure somebody will get it for you. All we ask is that you be a believer 
in Jesus Christ, that you've given your life to him, that you know him as your Lord and Savior. If so, then this is a way that no matter where you're from, how far away you live, we are one family because we serve one Lord and one spirit. I'm going to read from what the Apostle Paul...